Welcome back to Firewall. I am your host, Bradley Tusk. This is a Tuesday episode, so with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how are you doing? Good morning. We're here on Sunday morning recording, although this is the Tuesday episode. And I must say, it's much nicer being here on kind of a weekend, just in terms of like the, the street life. It's like, because uh, we're here at PNT Netwear, which yep, is your, your, your bookstore. And there's just like this really lovely kind of like flow of just people thrilled to Mainly be Mainly tourists. It's interesting. Sorry. So we, we actually just recorded a podcast right before this. So this is our, our second one of the morning. And we watch people walk by. It's about 11 a.m. right now. Mainly tourists, would you say, walking yeah. by? Yeah. Although look at this guy with the ripped shirt. That's an interesting look. He looks like he is still getting home from last night. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're going to have a couple different topics today. One is um, th- there was this uh, incident in the New York City subways. A man named Jordan Neely was died, killed. It's debated Murdered, to what happened. Possibly. Murdered, maybe. Um, and less about sort of whether or not it was murder or manslaughter or nothing, because it's, it's been talked to death already, but a little more broadly about sort of, I think, just the fact that, that the debate, like all debates we have these days, is so lacking in, in nuance that it just doesn't strike reality at all. And then the next one is sort of the same thing, but about capitalism, because you had sent me an article about Biden and neoliberalism and kind of, you know, does the whole economic system need to change? And again, um, you know, it's the the right answer and the real answer somewhere in the middle. We're talking a little about sort of the decline of of Silicon Valley, uh, a little about creative destruction. We're going to talk a little bit about um, Diane Feinstein and whether she needs to go. We're going to talk about concert tickets, make a recommendation. You have a recommendation, so I, do. I think we got a bunch of stuff to talk about. Good. So let's start then with 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 your your. Sort of, it's not a take exactly on Jordan Neely because I think, as you suggested, like the the sort of need for everyone to jump in with their with their airtight analysis of what 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 happened there and who's responsible. Um, you know, that's that's been been uh, yeah. But a little... what, and and I think what what I obviously what what happened was terrible, regardless of of how you look at it in terms of whether or not the uh, someone is, is to, to blame and to be charged with with any crimes, but. You know, you're just getting right back into where we always were, which is one side saying bad, 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 and the other side saying good, 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 right? And so on the bad side, it's, well, you know, this you, you can't trust the police. There's always police brutality. You know, the the whole criminal justice system is screwed up. Uh, we should defund the police. We, we can't convict people or even prosecute people because there's too much institutional discrimination in the system to begin with. Um, and that's not true, uh, entirely true. And it's also not entirely true that um, there's no such thing as police brutality or racism in the system or um, you know, subjective bias among prosecutors or uh, you know a- anything like that. And I think we're just we're just in this world on every fucking issue now where the nuance is gone, and as a result, we're all basically saying stupid things because. Th- the reality is you can live in a world, we live in a world right now where either you have to say that the police should be defunded and the jails emptied, or you have to support stop and frisk and, and police at all times. And the reality is this, there are black men are incarcerated at way too high of a rate. Um, sentencing laws around drugs are wrong and discriminatory, as is the entire war on drugs in my view. Um, there is police brutality at times, but at the same time, the vast majority of police officers are public servants and good people who are really trying very hard uh, to help make society function better. Um, There is real crime and real violence, and people should be protected from that, and they shouldn't just be subject to it because of inherent flaws in the system itself. Um, And, you know, our laws around 
bail and, and other things like that um, have had a really bad impact in places like New York City where um, you just have serial shoplifting. When you, when you have to ask someone at CVS to unlock something so you can buy a tube of toothpaste, something's not working clearly, right? And so what the point is, crime is real, um, quality of life uh, problems are real, um, there are bad cops, there are good cops, a lot more good than bad. Um, the system is both discriminatory in many ways, but at the same time, um, doesn't mean that no one should ever be incarcerated for, for any crime that they commit. And so just, you know, we're just, it's, it's depressing to be back in this, in this sort of world where, you know, everyone is forced to go to one side or another when the reality is it's at the margins. Like, yes, there should be police reforms. Yes, there should be bail reforms. Like, yes, we should always be tinkering at the margins to try to make things better. Um, but, but this notion that um, it has to be all or nothing, and if you don't take one of those two positions, you don't believe in anything, I think it's just it's contributing to a society that is, that is really falling apart. Well, what do you want out of your political leaders at a moment like this? Like, I mean, you, Bradley Tusk. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, th I think Eric Adams has actually handled this pretty well, um, because if, from his perspective, one, he does not want to start uh, a race war in New York City. Two, he is the leader of the police. And if the cops don't feel like the mayor has their back, it really impacts how they actually police. And have, since he was a cop, a transit cop, no less, for 23 years, he understands that really well. So the mayor does meet support. Bill de Blasio threw the police under the bus every chance he got, and they hated him. And honestly, uh, enforcement itself went down because they just didn't feel like really taking a lot of risks uh, for, for, for a guy who treated them so badly. This is obviously a little different than a policing issue, though. Uh, I mean, obviously, the police weren't directly involved. Yeah, in it, it is. But it, but it is an issue of we have a little bit of a breakdown of the social fabric where I think the pendulum shifted left enough that all of a sudden, you know, we're not. Uh, institutionalizing people who really do not belong out in the streets, and we are not demanding that people sleeping on the streets instead be in a shelter, and we are not um, trying, you know, we're, we're, we're not requiring bail, so people are just sort of walking turnstile kind of in and out of court. So, and, and we've elected all these prosecutors who, like Alvin Bragg, are, you know, Alvin's a really smart dude, but he fundamentally believes that crime is the product of institutional discrimination, and generally his sympathy lies with the criminal, not with the victim, and therefore he doesn't want to press charges. And by the way, he may be the best uh, of some of the other, you know, super left-wing DAs out there. And so um, I, I think we got to a point where we let the pendulum shift so far to the left that some of this can happen, and rather than there being sort of a widespread agreement of like, wow— this guy who was, you know, being terrible on the subway, subway and threatening people, but didn't deserve to lose his life over it. Um, there's debate of what should happen to him, but the debate reflects how frustrated and scared people are. It's interesting, you know, having lived in New York almost my entire life, there's still no way to deal with situations like this that feels right. You know, I'm just talking about it like if you're on this train. Um, yeah, like, like, I, I've been wondering, what, what, like, what, what do you think you would have done? I honestly have no idea. I mean, I know I wouldn't have grabbed him just because I don't know how to do that. <laughs> um, right. And 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 I, I I would have tried to avoid that as everything I could. But that's, you know, on, on the one sense, someone jumping in to restrain someone is not the worst impulse in the world. Um, you know, I think I would have looked to get into another car at first. I mean, that's what I've done in other times. You know, I, I remember a couple of times I've been on the train when something when there's been sort of a disturbance and I've actually thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm a relatively young and physically like 
fit person. Yeah, you guys, just, he's like, Hugo's being modest. He's seven <laughs> two, three fifty. Well, totally no, I sometimes right. think like if if I'm leaving the train, what so that so that so yeah. some some old person could get attacked or a child or right. you know like like I sometimes feel a sense of responsibility, even though I've never intervened physically in anything, so I don't know where that so, so, impulse so, comes so from. So let's let's make this a little more. Uh, Daniel Penny's the name of the Marine. Difficult, which is like okay, it was not no, it was not unknown that Jordan Neely was a problem. Right. He was on the list of sort of the 50 top people kind of who were on the streets and mentally who, who needed to be kept an eye on. Why should he's been arrested over 50 times? Like, obviously, he did not deserve to die on the subway. And they'll have to figure out sort of what kind of charges, if any, to, to, to press, you know. Uh, but with that said, um, shouldn't the city have had him not on the streets in the first place? Yeah, I don't think there's any question. But I, 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 and then what's what's interesting is how poorly understood. Like, what is the system for dealing with people like with Jordan Neely? Like, what is if if it had gone right, right? If if um, if he had been, uh, would he have been in a mental hospital under uh, without without ability to get out? I mean, held against his his wishes. Like, um, what what's the system? That that should be in well, place yeah. where he's not terrorizing. I mean, how people. do you also get arrested over fifty times and you're still walking the streets at all, right? So, like, mm -hmm. I'm not arguing for sort of the California three strikes and you're out, where people commit three relatively minor crimes and they're in jail for the rest of their lives. That's bad on all fronts. But at the same time, if you've been arrested fifty-two times, that means you've probably done something that could get you arrested hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And each time you do it, there's a victim, right? We're not talking about public urination, we're talking about assault, we're talking about robbery, we're talking about shoplifting. You know, there's a victim to it. And I think the reason why you see a lot of New Yorkers reserving judgment on this or sort of not jumping into this sort of just view that Jordan Neely was just murdered in cold blood is because people are tired of being the victims. I mean, there's a reason why the name Bernie Getz keeps coming up again. Yeah. Um, do you have any thoughts of where this goes from here? I mean, I, I, it seems likely he gets charged. Um, with something. Yeah, I mean, I think just given Alvin Bragg was the DA, he was obviously very famous now because he indicted Trump. Um, I think given his political views, given his political base, um, he's certainly going to indict uh, what's guy's name? Penny? Daniel Penny. Daniel Penny for something. I'd be shocked if he didn't. Um, but at the same time, what it won't? It'll be manslaughter or something like that. It's not going to be murder. And then maybe he they negotiate a deal where he doesn't serve too much time. Um, but look, this is the kind of thing that has the ability, like right now, I'll give Mayor Adams credit that it's been a big story, but it hasn't spilled out to the streets in terms of, of violence. Um, and it still has the potential to do that. Yeah. What do you tell your children about situations like this? Just get it was away really, or? I mean, I, you know, look, Lyle and I read the post every morning. So obviously we've been reading about this very specific thing now for, for the last few days. Um, it's really tough because on one hand, they are, you know, very progressive. They go to a super progressive school. They live in downtown Manhattan. Uh, and, and a lot of that's really great. On the other hand, they live in downtown Manhattan, which means they see mentally ill people on the streets that are scary to them, right? There's a woman who, I don't think she's, I don't know if she's mentally ill and she, she's okay, but there's a woman who lives in a tent right outside our front door. Right. Um, and I think is she there sort of just scared. permanently, more or less. I mean, she has been lately. Yeah. yeah. Um, or sort of like last night, Lyle was at his friend's house. His friend lives on 25th and 3rd. We're on 20th and 5th. 
And I let Lyle walk there at 7.30, but at 10.30 when it was time for him to come home, I sent an Uber for him because, you know, it wasn't a long walk. It would have taken probably less time than the Uber took, actually, but I just wasn't comfortable with this 14-year-old kid kind of walking by himself. And so, you know, um, I think that they don't, they don't really know what to do because there's where your head is and your heart and your mind and your experience, and they're conflicting, and it gets back to the underlying point. Like, all of this shit is hard, Right. And like this notion of like, well, if we put everyone in jail, everything will be fine. Or if we just defund the police and don't have one, everything will be fine. Everything will not be fine, right? Human beings are exceptionally complicated. Um, and we, we live in a world and a system that's even more complicated. And there's going to be lots of different outcomes and results all the time. And, and you have to approach each one as it comes, as opposed to just sort of taking these blanket positions that are ultimately highly irresponsible. Um, let's talk about, I, I, uh, I like the term Clintonomics. Um, I think Clintonomics. He probably uh, likes it too, right? Yeah, well, he, he, he probably liked it more, you know, 10 years ago. <laughs> um, the, there's a column by, um, is it Eric Levitz in, in, um, in, in New York Magazine? And it, it, it was about, it, it was, it, the column is sort of based on a speech that Jake Sullivan made um, that was sort of about the reorientation of uh, the country's economic policy around Sort of some, first of all, around national security first and foremost, and and um, and and then the reshoring of of, uh, of industrial companies as a, as a kind of um, as a kind of outgrowth of that, which is that you know since Clinton, since the the early mid '90s, the United States has pursued a sort of free trade um, agenda that's included uh, massively growing uh, trade with China, which has sent most of our manufacturing jobs overseas. Um, and in, I guess the, the trade is that our tech sector, our banking sector have grown tremendously. Yeah. Um, and like our, the, the nation's manufacturing output didn't just first start going down in the 1990s. It started going down basically not long after World War II. Uh, yeah, the '90s though was a was a was a big change. Um, certainly, because because you didn't have a, a country like China that had the scale um, sure. uh, to to do. I mean, the, the growth of China since the 1990s is obviously like yeah. phenomenal, one of the true wonders of of, of modern history, um, and that's basically due to the relationship between the United States and China. Um, and the thought was there's a famous quote from Clinton at the time when he's when he's uh, when he signed the agreement that that you know that this would uh, liberalize China that that their attempt to sort of control information would not be possible, that it would be like uh, nailing uh, jello to the wall. Do you remember that quote? I don't. Oh. And, and, you know, by the way, it's it's right, again, because we tend to look at everything in the lens that we're in right now. So right now, President Xi seems to be an extremely authoritarian person who clearly does not believe in human rights or free speech or all the things that are sort of tenets of, the, of our society here. And so therefore, the inclination, especially among kind of left-wing columnists, is to be like, bad, 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 see what happened, Clinton didn't work. Um, that's not true, right? I mean, so if, if you look at overall what Clinton and Greenspan and Bob Rubin and others did, um, there are, the world is an exponentially better place than it has ever been in terms of equality. Um, there are far fewer people who are living in extreme poverty the infant mortality rates are much lower. Life expectancy is much longer. Literacy rates are much higher on every single measure. So, yeah, I mean, the, the question in some ways you can ask, and this is what I think the, Donald Trump is saying many a lot of the ways, okay, our policies in many ways probably help lift a couple hundred million people in India out of poverty. 
Um, they also took people who were sort of reliably middle class in Indiana, uh, and now they may not be, right? Um, and so, in a way, you could argue that what Clinton did was was this sort of incredible service to the world at the expense, to a certain extent, to his own country. Um, that would be, that's certainly the, the, the second half of it is the Trump argument. I don't think he would say the first half of being this great service to the world. But, but overall, like, the question that you and I were debating kind of over, over text was like, does the entire economic system need to be overhauled? I'd say, no. But I it mean, is, right? It, the, the, the crux of this column and the Sullivan speech um, suggested that this is, this is not some sort of tinkering with the... With the I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, basically, what are the big examples? It's that we're spending over a trillion dollars on green energy projects and that we passed a $42 billion, I think, bill called the CHIPS Act to bring semiconductor plants back into the U.S. So those are very big investments, and they're necessary investments, but that's what government does, right? I mean, the, the point of having government is that you, without it, there's a collective action problem, um, and you can't—there uh, are things that individuals can do. There are things that individuals can do much better than government, but there are times where um, you need the scale of government to be able to enact major societal change. Um, and so— I don't know. I mean, it, 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 it seems to me that, like, is this that different than the WPA or the New Deal or the Great Society or whatever it is? Like, we constantly have massive government investment in public policy priorities uh, in order to try to make the country better. Um, let's talk about uh, the sort of—I I made a list of, of sort of not—I guess the—, the the what appear to be problems throughout the American economy, uh, both yeah. uh, both at the very top level at Apple and Google, which you know are obviously totally fine as right. ongoing institutions, but are but are at these kind of crossroads like moments uh, for different reasons. Um, you also have uh, the banking issue that started with Silicon Valley Bank and then has continued to kind of reverberate throughout the whole system. A number of regional banks um, have. Yeah, but I, again, this is all shit on the margins, man. Like, I really think the notion— Do you think the banking crisis is a thing on the margins? Yes. Okay. Yes. I, I, I think that um, clearly there were—and we've talked about this on this podcast a lot—regulatory changes made that loosened oversight of regional banks and specialty banks mm -hmm. that then combined with them having, you know, incentive to take as much risk as possible, to return as much profit to shareholders as possible— um, led to uh, ultimately those banks sort of not be able to protect their depositors' assets, and then that led to sort of a systemic meltdown to a certain extent where, you know, three or four banks have gone under, by the way. It's not 100. Um, but again, so that's, okay, so we can debate whether or not the asset minimum where you have, you know, rigorous bank examination should be $50 billion in, in assets or $250 billion. Um, You know, you can debate all kinds of things at the margins of, you know, where is regulation too much and where is regulation sufficient? And by the way, life goes on and you get shit wrong and, and you try to figure it out and get it right the next time. But I don't see anything that's happening in the economy right now as just this is the normal process of the market. Some companies succeed, some companies fail. And, and generally speaking, even Apple and Google will ultimately get stale and get disrupted by other companies. The only reason that that won't happen is if they continue to be allowed to have monopolistic power, which is why I think it's important that the FTC break up a lot of these companies and not allow them to stagnate innovation in the economy um, simply because no one can compete with them. Um, but no, I, I don't know. None of this strikes me as a huge problem. 
Um, here's a stati statistic. Um, in 2018-2019, uh, Silicon Valley's share of investment, venture investment was 40%. Um, uh, total U.S. investment um, in venture, it has fallen to 29.9% um, in the 12 months preceding March 2023. Uh, the New York, L.A., Boston area has more or less maintained its share, while the rest of the U.S. has grown um, its share. Is this, um, so I mean, the, the, the upshot is that in a relatively short amount of time, Silicon Valley's uh, dropped market share pretty significantly. Yeah, but that, that's because a cultural norm has changed, right? You don't need, so the reason Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley is Stanford University was creating all this incredible new technology, and then you had all these amazing entrepreneurs and engineers who gathered there both to take advantage of the technology and to work with each other, and that led to Hewlett-Packard and Intel and all of these companies that ultimately sort of built the, the U.S. tech economy. Um, and the world has changed, right? The, the, the cultural norms around work changed a lot because of COVID. And the reality is, to be a venture capitalist, you don't have to be on Sand Hill Road in, San Fran, in, in Palo Alto. You don't even have to be, you know, on 20th and Park, where all the you know, Union Square, where all the VCs like us are in, in New York. Um, you know, when I talk to other VCs, it's still generally like on text or email or Zoom or whatever it is. It's, it's not that often that like I pop by someone's office or vice versa. And I think COVID just taught us that like a lot of work can be done remotely. And so when you combine the fact that the need for physical proximity doesn't exist in the way it used to, combined with the significant quality of life declines in San Francisco where it's become sort of an unpleasant place to live and work, um, combined with, I think, you know, a heavy tax burden in states like California, a heavy regulatory burden, and just sort of constant moral excoriation. Um, people say, fuck this, and move it to Austin, and move it to Miami. And, like, you know, that's... It's just interesting that hasn't happened on the same scale at New York. Well, we had so much less of it, number one, to begin with. We have lost jobs and revenue, tax revenue, and everything else, you know, since COVID, um, I think because of that, but to a certain extent... Uh, look, New York City as a city has done a better job maintaining its value proposition than San Francisco, right? Like the, the cities are clean and safe and well-run, and they're kind of exciting and there's energy, they're going to be okay, right? And if they're not those things, that's when people say, you know what, I'm not going to put up with all of this, you know, incredibly high cost of living and high taxes and crime and everything else. I'll just go somewhere else. And so, you know, New York City overall... Um, partly because it's a wealthier city, but I think also partly just it's been better governed than San Francisco, um, has not had the same level of decline where, like San Francisco, Whole Foods just closed. Like, like the, these businesses that, that came in that are, we're not talking about like the 32nd Apple store in a three block radius. We're talking like a supermarket, right? And they're just saying, you know what? Crime is too high here. Shoplifting and theft is too high. Quality of life is too low. We've got people, you know, shooting heroin in our bathrooms and dying of fentanyl overdoses and things like that. We're just not going to be here. Um, so I, I think this is more about horrible political and governance leadership in San Francisco and the Bay Area than it is about anything else. Um, how much would you pay for your daughter to go see Taylor Swift? Now, I know that you actually got... Did you yeah, get tickets I, to two shows just from the yeah, lottery? Yeah, so so I, I know exactly what I would pay because I know what I, I did pay. Right, but you but you you probably pay more than that because you paid just a list price, right? Yeah. So right, so that's cheap. But they were to, still... I mean, they're, they're really... They're still like 800 bucks, 900 bucks ticket. Each? 
Yeah. They're really good. They're like right on the floor. And then the ones for the other night where uh, we're probably half that because they're not on the floor. Okay. Um, so, you know, but but yeah, but I'll, I'll give you a different example. There's a, a festival happening in D.C. the first weekend of October and a bunch of bands and, and artists that Abby wants to see. Abby, my daughter, like Lana Del Rey, Maggie Rogers. And... Um, I tried to get tickets through the whole Ticketmaster system, and I pre-registered, and I was in the queue and all of that, and it worked just as badly as it did for Taylor Swift. Right. Um, didn't get them, was shut out, and then had to go to the secondary market. Uh, what did you use? I used StubHub. Okay. The best platform by far. It is. Um, and um, we, we, I got five tickets for Abby and her friends, but you know, for a concert that should have been a hundred bucks to get into, it was like. 400 bucks or something 400 like that. each yeah so yeah i said to her collect from you usually i sort of just buy tickets for things for people constantly and i never like collect for it this one for some reason i was like you know all, all your friends are they all fucking money like tell their parents the fucking vendor 400 dollars is like a yeah or I'll, or i'll put them back on StubHub and get my money back. no I'm, uh, my girls are going to the boy genius show in in uh in forest hills and it's funny the tickets were 200 dollars like a month ago and then they're now they're 300 dollars, and um uh it just, it just, I mean, it's just crazy. So I guess my question is, is so you think these, these, is this just what the, this is the, what the market will I bear? I mean, it's, or it's two this... things. So part of it is the ticket price should be whatever the market will bear. Right. Because the reality is if people like me weren't willing to spend 400 bucks for that festival in, in DC, right. getting... then it wouldn't be 400 bucks. Right. right? Um, so clearly the, you know, that's just supply and demand. With that said, I think Ticketmaster is a real problem, right? You have a company that, owns both the entire ticketing process and because they're merged with Live Nation, the venues in the first place, right? And you have a significant monopolistic issue. Um, and I do think that if the FTC were to do its job um, and to say that we're not going to allow one company to control all of the supply in every conceivable way, um, then you would have a lot more tickets available to consumers. Supply would, would increase as a result, um, which means the prices would go down. Uh, the Democrats in Washington have a problem. Uh, Diane Feinstein is not able to do her job, but refuses to to retire. Yeah. Um, what should happen here? They got to remove her. Uh, you know, I understand that that is a difficult thing to do. I mean, I've, I've, I've been told that because her Alzheimer's is so advanced, every time Schumer has a conversation with her, that's a hard conversation about something like this. She forgets it, so he has to have it like the same conversation over and over again constantly. Um, look, here's what we know. This is why there was never any doubt that Biden was going to run for re-election. People don't voluntarily leave power, right? Kings don't abdicate. Uh, heavyweight boxers don't retire until they've been beaten enough times that no one will pay them to keep doing it. You know, artists, you know, all of this stuff. I mean, I can think of a handful of examples. George Washington, I guess, but he had still been, had power for a long time. And, <laughs> and, go back to George Washington. And pa I think Pope Benedict. Uh, Pope Benedict, right. You know, but that's about it, right? So, like, Is there a rock star who's just bowed out at the peak of... Bjorn Borg retired when he was 26. Yep. Yep, and never uh, came back. No, but but usually they do in yeah. one, one way or no, another. These are just the the exceptions. These are the, the rare rule. rare exceptions. Yeah. And so Diane Feinstein's a politician. I mean, as we've discussed in this podcast a zillion times, ninety nine percent of politicians are desperately insecure, self self loathing people that can't live out the validation of holding office. They run for office because it fills a hole in their psyche that can't be filled in any other way, and they literally would rather not exist and live than not get that kind of attention that they need. Uh, and Diane Feinstein is one of, you know, 530, it's 535 members of Congress. She's one of 525. They're probably like that, right? I will say this, which is 
we need term limits, right? Um, and we need every reform conceivable. We need mobile voting, and we need gerrymandering reform, and we need ranked choice voting, and we need open primaries, uh, and we need same-day registration. And, and basically, we have a system that is so built to just maintain power for the few that have it um, that we need to disrupt it in every possible way that we can. What's your recommendation for this week? Um, two things. One is uh, I saw a band called The Heavy play the other night at a venue in Brooklyn called Elsewhere. And I would just say it, Kelvin Swaby, who's the um, the lead singer, was one of the best performances I've ever seen anyone give, like just in terms of energy and emotion and like every like riff he had like led into the next song in a perfect way. And Just like, like our podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the opposite of our podcast. Um, so it, if the heavy comes to a town near you uh, and you like their music, it's it's an amazing show. Two, I'm in the middle of, I usually don't do this in the middle of a book, so maybe I'll end up having regretting this, but a <laughs> uh, novel called Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwabne Ajay Brenyan. I'm not sure if I'm saying uh, the name right or not. Um, but it is kind of like Hunger Games for adults um, set in the future, penal colony, sort of a lot of the same stuff that you would see and the stuff that like our kids like to read when they were like teenagers, um, but just incredibly well done. And it is clearly an indictment of, in many ways, the criminal justice system, but in a way that like, as you know, I have the lowest tolerance for being preached to of like anyone, right? Like I fucking hate being told what to think. And this book has really done a masterful job of making a very clear political point, um, but in a way that is entertaining and interesting, and I don't feel put upon at all. You have a recommendation. Uh, I do. I'll quickly say it. Uh, there's a, a substack that I was introduced to that is a, um, uh, it's a breakdown of each issue of The New Yorker. Um, it picks one thing to read, tells you which ones you can kind of skim and which ones you can skip. And what I really love about it is that the guy takes it super seriously. It's called Last Week's New Yorker. It's on Substack. You have, um, you have to pay for it? You can read it without paying for it and check it out, but it does have a subscription. So, so here would be my question. The reason that I've mainly stopped reading The New Yorker okay. is because I don't like being told what to think. Right. Right. And I have found that anything that touches politics in any way at this point is so preachy and self-righteous and one-sided that I, I can't stomach reading it. Okay. Right? So... What's his perspective on that? Well, I haven't read enough to to answer that question directly. And and the funny thing is, is like I didn't even really look at the political stuff as much. And but mostly, that's that's half their content. Right, no, it's true. But mostly, I just like to read the stuff he said not to read because I wanted to see why. Because I thought that was more fun. Did you think he was right, generally? You, you wouldn't recommend it if you didn't. Um, you know, it was just they were just well argued and informative. So I I I, I can't say whether his taste or his or his critical faculties are. Are, uh, are the best. No, I'm, I'm going to check it out because I still have my subscription despite all of that. Um, and there is sometimes something really great in there. And I often find myself avoiding it entirely because I get so aggravated and looking at the coverage that I just... Well, you should check it out because it out. I think what he, what he brings to it is kind of enterprise value, like someone who is taking it really seriously and, and also having some fun with it. The, the write-ups are witty and, and not... Right, you so know, the guy's name again is what? What's that? What's the guy's name? Um, Sam Circle. Sam Circle. It doesn't sound like that's his real name, to be honest. That but maybe it's like a fake name, like Jonathan <laughs> Sam Smith. Circle. Um, maybe it's David Remnick, like yeah. the editor in chief, like <laughs> that would doing be really it secretly. Funny. Sam Circle, if that is your real name. <laughs> um, anyway, all right. So check out uh, the various recommendations that Hugo and I just gave, and thanks, Hugo. We'll see you next week. Bye bye.